You're listening to the Metro LA Podcast, an official podcast of the LA International Church of Christ. Good morning, everybody. This is Robert Carrillo at Metro Vision Studios, and we are coming down the home stretch with the book of Hebrews, and uh, we're getting into some uh, really intense chapters uh, that are just so rich, so full. Uh, and if you notice, I'm sporting our new volunteer t-shirt here. This is all volunteers in the metro region, uh, and anybody who vote volunteers with us from any region gets their LA shirt, and uh, just modeling it for you here. But uh, I'm excited because this is this is we're getting in the heart of these things. And of course, I keep saying that because uh, every chapter has so many great things. But so let's go ahead and pray, and we'll jump right into Hebrews chapter 10. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for, uh, this, what a wonderful book this is, God, and for, we're learning so much and it really is building up our faith and our convictions and strengthening us. And, and I pray, Father, that everyone who tunes into these classes, uh, is getting a lot out of it, Father, that their faith is being fed and that they're growing a lot, God. Please bless all the hearers of pray, Father, that these studies that we're doing will be able to uh, be a blessing to many, many people, Father. And uh, we thank you. Give us wisdom, insight, knowledge. Help us to see whatever you want us to see and to hear whatever you want us to hear. We love you, God. Uh, bless our study in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so Hebrews chapter 1, here we go. Um, chapter chapter 10, sorry, chapter 10, verse 1. So <clears throat> now, just as a reminder, you know, we've been we've been coming down the home stretch of of Jesus as the, as the greater high priest with the greater covenant. And, um, we talked a lot about the tabernacle, all the symbolism and the metaphors that, that are really a foreshadowing of Jesus, right? And of the, of the relationship we have with Jesus. And we broke that down a little bit. And, and as I said before, there's a lot more in there. Um, if you want to really dig deep, get our book, buy the book that John Oaks and I read wrote on Hebrews, um, uh, living by faith. Um, so now it's kind of a, he, he kind of summarizes everything. You know, there's the old saying, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them what you're going to tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Right. And that's kind of what happens here. So it, 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 it's kind of repetitive, but in a good way that we learn things, that we remember things, that we walk away with this imprinted in our mind. So Hebrews chapter 10, verse one, he says, the law <clears throat> is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality, not the realities themselves. You know, he says, he says the law is a foreshadowing, right? So, you know, again, I, I mentioned this before, if you're standing, if you're sitting there, like, let's say I'm sitting here working and I see the shadow, a shadow come up, that tells me someone's coming. It doesn't tell me a lot of detail. It's just a foreshadowing. It's, it's one dimensional. It's one shape. It's one color. So it only gives me an idea of who is coming. Maybe I could make out if it's a man or a woman. Maybe I could make out if they're tall or short. Probably not even that. Not necessarily. But it gives me an idea that a person is coming, right? Now it's the reality themselves once they come. That's really what it's all about, right? I mean, the foreshadowing points to the reality. And that's the argument that he's making. Um, um, not, he says, it's not the reality themselves. So, so the, 
tabernacle, the temple, the old covenant. They're all foreshadows, you know, and in some ways, so even is Abraham and Moses and David. They're all foreshadows, the father, the prophet, the, the, the king. They're all foreshadows. And, and that's the argument he's been making that Jesus is greater than the prophets because they pointed to Jesus. He's greater than Abraham. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than Melchizedek, the, the high priest king that is a foreshadowing, right? So he says, for this reason, it can never be by the same sacrifice repeated. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifice repeated endlessly year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. Okay, so it's imperfect. And something that's imperfect can't make what's perfect, can't produce perfect. So it's an imperfect, or and keep in mind, again, the idea, the Greek idea of perfect is fully developed, fully mature, fully uh, uh, evolved, uh, uh, reached its pinnacle. And the foreshadowing is not a perfect person. It's an imperfect image of somebody who's the person, the reality. So he says, otherwise, would they not, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. If those sacrifices were perfect, if they were fully developed, fully mature, fully applicable and could forgive you fully, then you wouldn't feel guilty. You wouldn't have any sin on you. You would, you wouldn't, there would be no need for anything else. But they didn't, and of course the priests had to go there year after year after year, and the sacrifices had to be made regularly, and and because they never completely finished our guilt and our sin before God. Not the way Jesus does. He says, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There's no way that the blood of goats and bulls is going to take away all our sins. It's just not going to happen. It's an impossibility. I, I love how emphatically it's stated, right? That this is simply impossible. There's, there's several times that, um, that the, the idea of something, Hebrews lays out something impossible. In chapter six, he said it's impossible for the, somebody who has fallen away to return. And we talked about that, that, that there's a, there's a point where somebody's fallen away that they can come back, but there seems to be some kind of a line that's crossed and then they cannot come back. They will not come back. Um, and that's different than the, the lost sheep that the shepherd goes after and brings back. This is, this is something, this is a point that a person who's become a Christian turned their back on God and denied Jesus will no longer return. That, that, is a horrible thing to be at that place. Most people who struggle and fall away at, at the beginning, there, there's still plenty of, you know, there's, they can be won back, you know, they can be brought back. I mean, Peter was restored. The apostles left, abandoned Jesus. Peter denied Jesus three times, you know, and they were brought. So there's plenty of comeback stories, but if, if you keep going, there's that place. He said it's impossible for God to lie. Boy, that's that good news, you know? I mean, if God can't lie, then that means you you can count on everything he says to be the truth. That's awesome. Um, he says it's, uh, and then in, in chapter 11, 6, it's impossible to please God without faith. 
you know, which is again, what Hebrews is all about is restoring our faith and living by faith again. So then in verse five, he says, therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings. You were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. He's quoting, of course, uh, here he's quoting from Psalm 40. Um, and actually what, one of the values of the book of Hebrews, you see how the Old Testament is used, how he's woven to, how it's woven together. He, and, and just before we get to the end of the chapter, you're going to see another blend of, of scriptures here, how they're woven together, how they're quoted. The person who wrote this had a clear mastery of the Old Testament, really knew their Bible, clearly knew their Bible, knew how to use their Bible. And, and obviously, yes, the Holy Spirit's still behind this, but, but I think it's incredibly impressive. You know, I mean, I think how, how well could we do that? How well could we in an argument or if we're having a conversation some with someone, how many scriptures could we just weave together to make the point? that flow together, that make a clear uh, argument for something. That's that's a good model there. I mean, that's a side point, but but it is an important thing. First, he said, so he's, so again, so he's quoting the Old Testament, presenting the importance of this sacrifice, of this, what God really wants. And he says, first, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire. He said this, he's saying, that's not what he ultimately wanted. That's not the real goal of God, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. You know, there's, there's, there, it's important to understand that there are things that God asked for that are just simply for us to learn things out of. They're not really what he ultimately wants. You know, if I, if I, if I tell my five-year-old, you know, you are not to leave the house. You do not go out the house unless you talk to me. What is my desire there? Well, you say, well, his, your desire is to make sure your kid doesn't go outside. Yes, but there's actually a much bigger desire behind that is that my kid is safe, that my kid doesn't get kidnapped or gets hurt and I'm not there to help them. The, the, my, the bigger desire is that they be safe. So, that's when you, when you hear, you know, sacrifice and burnt offerings you did not desire. You know, that's, that's, uh, that's the whole argument of Micah 6 or Hosea, uh, 6, 8, or 8, 6, 6, 8. And these, these arguments where you hear these statements that theologically are kind of complicated because, because wait, it was God who required those. It's God's law that, that, that they make these sacrifices. Yes, and and there's reasons for that, but it's not ultimately what he really wanted. What he really wants is to for us to understand these things and to be able to recognize when the reality comes that these are foreshadowing, to recognize the real high priest, the real covenant. What is what are the real things that we need to grab onto? So he says. Um, then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
So he said, you know, all the repeated sacrifices, all the sacrificed animals, all the blood of, of, of a lamb or the, the goat or the bull or all of this that was done, there were important lessons, but they did, they were imperfect. They didn't save us. And of course, obviously the, the first hearer here are the Jewish Christians who are being tempted to go back to Judaism. And he's telling, it's like, why would you do that? Why would you go back to something that doesn't save you? That, that why would you? Why? I mean, who falls in love with a shadow? That doesn't make any sense. You fall in love with a person. So he said, you have been living in the shadow or dealing with the shadow, the foreshadowing of the real high priest, of the real prophet, of the real king, of the real uh, Messiah. Not don't 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 fall in love and be loyal. To the, the shadow of the person, of the foreshadowing, and that's that 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 can't save you. Love the Messiah who can save you, the real one. So, and he says, and he made his sacrifice once and for all. It's one time covers all sin, not just not only sins committed knowing ignorantly, but also the sins that we committed knowingly, the ones that we are aware of that. That we knew what we were doing was evil. And, and whereas the, the, the foreshadowing sacrifices only covered the sins in ignorance. So then he says in verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest has had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now, okay, so you might think, gosh, he's saying it again? I mean, this is, re- talk about re- repetitive teachings or re- repeated statements. Yeah, he's saying it again. I mean, it's like, I, he really wants us to get this, right? And especially, obviously, again, keeping in mind the, the, the first audience, uh, which I call the, the, the direct recipients, you know, that are being tempted to go back to a system that is completely inutile. Uh, unusable, inutil is, it's a Spanish word, inutil. It's, it's, um, useless. And he says, you know, day after day they're doing this and it doesn't save him. But he says, but when this high priest offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And you know, one of the, just a slight cultural thing here is that, that, um, you know, most work, work in general in, in this time period, you went and you worked. Like today, um, there are many, many jobs, many jobs that you sit all day. You sit in front of a computer and you work all day. And you sit at a desk and you work all day. In ancient times, when people worked, they weren't sitting. <laughs> they weren't sitting. They were out working. When you sat down is when you were done with your work. When you were finished with your labor. So even sitting down is a sign of, I'm done. I'm finished. It's done. I don't need to get back up. I need to know. I don't need to go back. I don't need to go back to the Holy of Holies. The sacrifice is done once and for all. And he sat at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. And of course, he's referring again back to the Old Testament. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. 
Okay, that's who? That is us. We're the ones being made holy. We are being sanctified. We are the Christians. We are the disciples of Jesus. And so with that one sacrifice, he saves us all. So how many times is he going to say this? He's going to keep saying it till we get it, basically, you know? And he says, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my heart in their hearts and I will write them down. I will write them on their minds. Okay. So this is, this is a covenant that is, that is not just written on stone tablets. This new covenant is on our minds and on our hearts. This is what we learn, what we love, what we, what we give thought. We give our mind to, we give our heart to, you know, we love God with our heart, heart, mind, soul, and strength. We give ourselves completely to it. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. He says it again, right? And, and, and I love this, how he concludes this. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sins is no longer necessary. So it's kind of the, it's the final statement. Really, it's kind of wraps up this whole argument that we've been listening to in eight, nine, and 10. He says, look, where the final sacrifice is made by the real high priest and the real covenant and the real temple, we don't need to go back anymore. We don't need any more sacrifices. We're done. It's paid. You know, I mean, if you know that, 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 if you've ever had that feeling when you, you know, back in the day, they would send you a book of payments when you bought a new car and you tear out your little book and payment number 10, payment number 20, payment number 28 and whatever number of payments. That's, you know, if you, if you did a three year loan is 36 payments and that when you send that last payment, it's like, Oh, happy day. You know, you tear out that last one, Woo-hoo! last payment and then no more payments. And, and that's basically his statement is the last payment was made. The one that covers it all, that covers you, covers everything. Hallelujah. That's the good news. And we don't, we probably don't feel it as strongly as they did because they understood what all these sacrifices meant and how holy the holy of holies was. You know, they understood all this things that we only know in our heads because we heard it in a class somewhere. But this was very significant for them. And, and, you know, the, my little analogy of the car payments, that's, that's, that, that is kind of how it would go is this, the, the priests are making constant payments on us. You know, and, and the bummer though is we're not really paying it off and we're not even paying off the monthly payment, let alone the big payment. And, and it's not ever leading to a complete payoff. What a bummer that would be, right? What if you had a, an endless supply of payment books and you never get to pay off the car? You know, you're just always making payments. That's basically his argument. He said, but Jesus was the last payment and that one covers all payments in the future. Hallelujah. And what is he paying off? Our sins. The things that separate us from God. The things that destroy our life. The things that would cast us into hell. The things that would prevent us from having our name written in the book of life. So how awesome is that? And then we switch gears to to really something very powerful and important. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence 
And this is, this begins the fourth admonition, the fourth, uh, paraclesis, the, the, the warning, the admonition, the encouragement, however you want to call it. That word, you know, I think at the beginning I talked about five paraclesis, which was a traditional model. Uh, there's another, you know, you can break it down to seven major paraclesis, um, warnings or encouragement. And the truth is, even with the seven, there's like sub ones, you know, beneath them. But now this is the fourth one. We've already heard the first three. He says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Okay, so now all this has been established. Okay, hang on. He's going to summarize it now. It's going to get summarized. You know, we've, we've, we've got it explained to us. We've had it broken down. We've had it, we've had it, you know, repeated, the breakdown repeated to us so that we thoroughly understand this message. And now here's the breakdown. Here's the summary. Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. Okay. By a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with sincere hearts and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water or, you know, the, 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 the blood of Jesus that cleanses us, washes us. Actually, it's really not a summary. It's more of a, a therefore, you know, because of all this, this is what we can do. We can approach God with confidence. Uh, we have a brand new and living way open through for, through the curtain. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was torn open and he opened the way for us. And therefore we have full assurance and confidence and we can have a clear conscience and, a, and approach God with that confidence, knowing we've been pot washed with pure water. And then, then he starts into the lettuce statements. And, uh, you know, I was told once, this is, this is the salad bowl because we have all this lettuce. Well, he starts out, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. So the first thing is just hang on and don't buckle, don't swerve, don't go back and forth, don't deliberate. Stand firm, he's saying. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. That no matter what's happening now, and remember the backdrop is, they were getting persecuted. They were suffering for being Christians. You don't necessarily suffer for being a Jew at this point, but you do suffer for being a Christian. So they were being tempted to go back to Judaism and then, and hence all the argument against going back to Judaism. And he says, let's hang on to that hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. I mean, if anybody on this planet is faithful, Jesus was faithful. And he says, and here's the next lettuce. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That we not only need to hang in there ourselves, but we need to help each other hang in there. And we need to, to, to think about how can I help my brother make it? That, that the strength of our fellowship is not that we're all individual supermans. It's that we bind together and help each other make it there. You know, the redwood forest, those huge trees in Northern California, they're so incredibly tall. They don't have these intense roots like some trees. But what they do have is they have a powerful root system that intertwines. And literally, they're holding each other up. 
They're able to stand tall because their roots are intertwined and woven together. So that's what we need to be. We have our roots intertwined. So we, so we can't isolate ourselves. We can't let ourselves be loners. We have to stay tied in with the fellowship. He says, let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds. You know, help each other. Keep doing what's right. Keep helping out. Not giving up meeting together. And this is really important. I think especially for now, because as I give this class, we're in a quarantine, right? That we've been in now six months and may last another four or five, six months more. You know, who, who knows? But it, but, but we're talking a very long amount of time where we cannot physically meet together. So we have to figure out ways to keep bonded keep connected to each other and not let each other become isolated. And he says, as some are in the habit of doing, doing, you know, we all know this. I mean, there's always, there's always a fringe, you know, people who, eh, they're not always coming. They miss a lot. They're, they're distracted. They're caught up in other things. I'm not talking about people who are sick. I'm not talking about people who have extraordinary circumstances that keep them from church. That, that's something very different. That's really, in a sense, it's, it's not in their control. They can't get to the meeting. They can't get to midweek or to church on Sunday. And there, and those people, the church needs to help them overcome those obstacles. I'm talking about people that don't want to be there, that, you know, aren't going because they don't want to, you know, and they're missing services and they're missing meetings and they're becoming the fringe of the church. It's not a place you want to be. It's a very bad place to be. Before the Lord, it's bad because it means basically you're on your way out. You're on your way falling away. And where do you think the lion is going to devour people from first? You know, where's he going to go hunting? Of course, he's going to go hunting in the fringe because that's the people that already have one toe outside the kingdom or maybe even a whole foot outside the kingdom. So let us not give up meeting together. Some in the habit are doing but encouraging, and you could have, you know, these are all lettuces actually, because the lettuce not, um, let us spur one another on, let's not give up meeting together, let's, um, but, but figure out how to weaken, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching, you know, that we should always have in our mind that Jesus is coming back. Last week I preached a sermon on the, the return of Jesus, or Jesus in the end, and we should be thinking about these things, we should be aware of that, that Jesus is coming back. We don't know when, but he is coming back. It could be in our lifetime. Absolutely could be. And Jesus wants us ready. Or it could be in a thousand years, in which case we need to make sure that we get everybody else ready and that we pass on what we're learning. And then he goes into another admonition. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning, after we have received, and, and by the way, I've already read this and discussed this, but I'll just, I'll briefly, uh, uh, summarize it again. But this is, I would say one of the scariest scriptures in the whole New Testament. Um, maybe the scariest, you know, it's a close call. Uh, he says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. I mean, whoa, talk about a warning. You know, basically he says, you keep sinning, you keep doing what you know is deliberate. And the key word is deliberate. It's doing something intentional. It means you know you're doing wrong and you're blowing off God. You're blowing off the truth. You're blowing off the church. You're just, you're just going to do it anyways. Being stubborn in sin. 
That's different than, oh man, my weakness, I fell. That's a whole different category. This is deliberate, intentional sinning. That you just, you don't care what anybody says. You know, you, you, you're going to give your heart to a non-Christian and, and be immoral. That's just what you're going to do. And you know it in advance and you're planning on it and you're going, you know, whatever, you know, I don't want to follow that analogy too far. But if we deliberately keep on sinning after you see the knowledge, it should no sacrifice for sins. So all that talk on sacrifice, there's, there's another one. You, you, in fact, you know, he, he gets pretty intense. He says, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. He says, um, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the son of God underfoot? who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him, them and who was, has insulted the spirit of grace. And, you know, he really tells you how God sees it, that you're trampling on the blood of Jesus. There is nothing more sacred than the blood of Jesus. The last thing any parent ever wants to see is their child's blood. That's always bad news. How much more the ultimate father and the ultimate son. And he didn't just bleed a little. He bled a lot to save us. To do all the wonderful things we've been reading about in 8, 9, and 10. How bad is that to trample on that? To step on it as though it were nothing. And and, and, and to treat it as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them. And he says, who's insulted the spirit of grace. You've insulted grace. I mean, that's how, that is just bad. You do not ever want to be in that situation. That is a bad place to be. And he says, for we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. If you're out there just turning your back, blowing off God, blowing off what you know is right, you are in major trouble and you need to repent right away because this is really serious to God and, and you're, and you're, you're bringing on disaster on yourself. He says, it is mine to avenge. What does that mean? That God will punish. He says, I will repay. Do not think that anybody's getting away with anything. God will not be mocked. We reap what we sow. And he says, and again, the Lord will judge his people. You know, that, that we are his holy nation, his royal priesthood. We are under his grace. Do not insult the spirit of grace. That God is so forgiving. That God is so kind and patient. He says, he sums it all up saying, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, it's just, there's, there's an incident in Acts 5 where, um, Ananias and Sapphira, if you remember, they lie to the leaders of the church. They didn't even lie to God. They lied to the leaders of the church about the money they gave to the church. 
and they dropped dead. God killed them. I mean, he killed two Christians. And it says, great fear seized the whole church. You know, because sometimes I think, you know, we, 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 it's important that we understand how kind, how gracious, how patient God is. Because most of us, we have to fears to overcome. And we need to know how gracious and patient and kind and forgiving God is. But sometimes we get in a really bad place where we take advantage of that. And we, and we think that we can just blow God off, you know, and you never want to act on that. And this is what he's addressing, that you don't want to be the person who's blowing off God and treating him that way. And God will deal with you. And, and, and I think that in our culture today, because we don't have anything sacred, we, we, we have, there's nothing in our society that's sacred. Everything is questionable. Everything is, is can, you know, it's, it's all about the me and what I want and what I think. And, and, and they're just, there's, there's nothing sacred. We, we, we start to lose that conviction about something being holy. They didn't. The Jews understood sacred. They understood holiness. So when they read this, I'm thinking they're like literally just trembling to hear this. It would do well for us. It would be good for us to tremble a little sometimes. To, to remember that God is a consuming fire. To remember that the enemies of God have always been destroyed. Just good to have a little fear of God. You know, we, we translate that into respect. Because a lot of love and a little fear equals respect. We understand He is God. And we are not. And that's the basic warning. And then another warning, another major warning comes up right after. He says, it actually, I would even, I would say it's actually more of an encouragement than a warning. This one's more positive. He says, remember those earlier days after you received the light when you endured in great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. I mean, they were getting their homes taken. They were getting their land taken. They were getting everything they had. Their businesses shut down. They were getting all all kinds of things were happening to them because they were God's people, because they were Christians, and they took it. He's reminding you, remember how much you've been through already. But, you know, the danger always is, as time goes by, we get lax, we get comfortable, and we're no longer stepping out. We're no longer fierce in our faith when we can become more fearful instead of more faithful. And and he's warned, and he's basically encouraging them, you guys did this. Because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. Hang on to that confidence, that boldness, that assurity, that, that, that just, man, this is what I know. You know, I, I sometimes an exercise I give people to do sometimes is write down 10 things that you know absolutely for sure about your religion. And then make sure you're living by those. He says, don't throw away your confidence. Don't throw away the things that you knew. He says, it will be richly rewarded 
It will. You're going to be rewarded in heaven for the confidence you have and for the ways that you have endured and persevered and not given up. He says, you need to persevere. Persevere. Don't be a quitter. Our society is so full of quitters. People quit on each other all the time. People quit relationships. People quit friendships. People quit jobs easy. They, they just quit. Where our, our, our world has become a world of quitters. It's don't quit. Persevere. So that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And then here he goes again. He's, he's pulling out the Old Testament and he's making his argument. For in just a little while, he was coming, will come, and will not delay. Okay? He's, he's pulling it out. And by, but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Habakkuk, right? But we, and this is one of the best statements in the book of Hebrews. And this is why it's encouraging, not so much discourage, or not, not threatening. It's more a build-up statement. He says, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. What a powerful statement he ends this whole discourse on. We're not the ones who quit. We're not the ones who shrink back. We're not the ones who get destroyed by God. No, we're the ones who have faith and are saved. That's awesome. And that's chapter 10. We'll stop there. You've just listened to the Metro LA podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit MetroLARegion.com 